you don't sit. Come on up with me. Uh, we've decided to let John share his story a little bit with us this morning in light of his present situation. So, John, thank you. You're welcome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Not everyone here knows you. Not sure that's true. Okay, um, so I was born and raised in Venice, Florida. Uh, I was the youngest of five, two sisters, two brothers. Um, had kind of a dysfunctional family. My parents were usually loving and attentive, but they're also alcoholic and physically and verbally abusive. So uh, I went to college, studied music at first, and then uh, biological or biomedical studies. Uh, 35, I married Bethany, who was an actual answer to a prayer. Uh, she's an amazing Christian woman. And we had our six amazing kids. Six. <laughs> Last count. No yeah. comment. <laughs> Just six. Yeah, and we were founding members of this church. Did you guys know that? Yeah. yeah. I was like eight of us that met in the living room. So. The, the humble beginnings of H2O. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Yeah, and I, I worked as a gymnastics coach, and, uh, and I did uh, stage, lighting, and that kind of thing, and construction, while Bethany worked her way up at the YMCA. Mm -hmm. So, so how, did you, um, how did you come to know Jesus? Uh, when I was nine, my sister started going to a home group, and she brought me along to kind of rescue me from the tumult. Um, so uh, that started my Christian walk. It's more like a stagger. You know, two steps forward, one step back. Um, but um, I was always trying to reconcile my Christian behavior with what was expected of me from my parents, uh, which was kind of uh, was odd. They kind of encouraged me to get in fights and be intimate with girlfriends and, and drink alcohol. Um, that was just the kind of their mindset at the time. Uh, still, I followed Christ, and he changed me. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to behave badly, and I mostly didn't. So uh, it, was, you know, it was strange. I found myself lying to my parents that, you know, that I did these bad things I didn't really do, but <laughs> <laughs> kind of the opposite of it. I was the opposite of that, just so <laughs> yeah. you know. Okay. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, I had a great time with her. I was like, you know, <laughs> I was like, no, I really didn't, but. And, and when I was 13, my parents came to Christ, and things got a bit awesome. better after that. And then uh, when, since becoming a Christian yourself, then your life was just perfect, right? Uh, it, was, it was a little bit perfect. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I mean, I've been blessed uh, beyond measure my, my whole life, and, and uh, everyone has struggles and, and challenges. For me, I've been the, uh, my problem, mostly, you know, however you want to uh, label it, anxiety or ADHD or codependence or whatever. I don't like putting a label on it. It kind of supplants personal responsibility. Uh, but you know, so it caused the common stuff, you know, um, marital stress and money problems and career detours, that kind of thing. But we've gotten through it. And uh, one of our kids has kind of a lifelong medical problem that mm -hmm. kind of weighs on us. You know, she has a, have an injection every single day mm -hmm. and take, you know, pills her whole life. So. Uh, still, God's blessed us every day. So tell us about what you're facing right now. Uh, so um, after finally uh, recovering from a years-long depression, in 2016, the doctors removed my kidney because of cancer uh, and some other stuff they said was unimportant. So, <laughs> and, uh, and they thought they got it all. But in July, uh, we found out that the, this pain in my back uh, was caused from uh, uh, not just my back, but it's, it's cancer. Um, 
uh, up and down from top to bottom, various organs and places in my body. So uh, basically riddled with cancer, mm. uh, not ideal. So the prognosis was said to be bleak because uh, it's, a, it's a tenacious, fast-growing thing. Basically, I was going to have a two to six month torturous journey and then it'd be over. Mm. So, uh, so what I'm facing is, is, is supernatural strength and grace and healing, not just for me, but my whole family. You had asked me to give you an opportunity to express some gratitude here this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow, I've been, I've been blown away by this congregation um, from, from day one. People haven't just stepped up, but they, they, uh, they just come alongside with sincere love and, and kindness and generosity and empathy. Um, uh, Mick and Steve jumped up straight off and got the ball rolling with everything we needed. Steve has always been a a source of strength, and uh, he's been there all along the, the way. There's several others labored kind of namelessly behind the scenes. Um, uh, Lisa stepped up. Where's Lisa? Or she's hiding there. <laughs> Lisa stepped up straight away. Um, and Marianne has just been amazing in managing our various projects. Um, another person uh, anonymously donated $10,000 earmarked oh. for, for uh, uh, building materials and such. Roger and his uh, family have been remarkable in donating their labor and invaluable expertise in renovating our house. Um, I'm really looking forward to working with, with him and his son. They're just you know, amazing people. Um, Rick and Mia, I guess they're not here today, right? Uh, and they've been just selfless and doing the, the GoFundMe page and all kinds of other stuff. And so many other uh, people, um, Tillman and Gail, uh, Clarice, uh, the Sonnenbergs, Chris, you, John. Uh, you better put me in there, Sophia. <laughs> I, and you've been great. And, and Jim and the Duns, uh, Hillary. When I was uh, went to the hospital to pick up my MRI and I to, to read the results, and she just came out of nowhere. I look up and she's she's standing there uh, praying with me. Mm. You know, uh, like a godsend. And uh, the extended church members, people who used to, uh, people who moved or whatever family of H2O and so many others who like have given to the GoFundMe account, brought meals, prayed for us. And we, we just, we thank you all and we, and we thank God for you. And there are no words to express how much we, uh, we love and appreciate you. So I, I just wanted to say something too. You guys have really been amazing. And um, John and I were talking in my kitchen two weeks ago, I think it was. And John said, you have an amazing, no, we have an amazing church. And he just went on and on about how much we really have been the body of Christ for him. So in what, whatever role you've played there, sincerely, thank you very much. Can we pray for you? God, I thank you for this man's heart. I thank you for his faith. I thank you for his journey, how you rescued him and saved him. We're so grateful Lord, for that. We bless you for that. We thank you for the privilege of walking beside him through the ups and downs of life, through the valley of the shadow of death. We thank you, God, for this. We thank you for his shining joy. We pray for his family. We pray for his wife and for his kids, that you would strengthen them, that you would provide for them. But we pray also in hope against hope, we pray for his healing. 
we pray through the power of Jesus Christ that you would extend your hand and provide many more days, many more years for this man with his wife and his family and with us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. I don't know how to transition out of that into a teaching. Um, you all know that I'm 5'7", right? Yeah. No, I know, 5'7". And uh, so a couple of people said that uh, they had trouble seeing me in the back. You guys can see me okay, though, right? And that's what I'm about to do. Pastor Steve put this together for me. And I decided I'm just going to humble myself and do this. Yes. Wow. So this is what it's like for some of you. This is awesome. I'm like in the clouds here. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I hope very few of you caught what I just did. Um, so our notes, just in case uh, you use our app, our notes are not in the app this morning, nor will they be uh, next Sunday. So here's we, uh, I, I'm really glad, I hope this makes sense to you, I'm, I'm glad that Christmas comes along each year. Uh, because I've been at this for a long time. I've been following Jesus for a long time. And you get used to it, right? God became flesh, but we get used to it. This incredible story kind of becomes commonplace. And we don't want that for all of us here this morning. Today we do celebrate what is called incarnation that's Latin for God with flesh. I mean, we have to step back and just, wait a minute. So, so the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who we know as Jesus Christ, has always existed with God the Father, but stepped down into human history and took on flesh as a baby. It's amazing, God with flesh. And so what I want to do today, because it's easy for us, some of us have only heard the secular version of Christmas. We're only used to Santa Claus and, and the giving of presents. And others of us have grown up with that, but now we've heard about Jesus and we're followers of Jesus, but the story can become commonplace. And so what I want to do today is tell you the story behind the story. What I want to do is tell you how God prepared the world for the coming of the Messiah. I've never given this teaching before. Actually, as I studied for it, it really impressed me that there are four people groups, the Jews, the people of the East, which is the Babylonians and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, and God, through these people groups, over about 2,000 years, brought the world into a place of incredible expectation and longing for the Messiah. And very few people know this story, and that's why I, I want to I tell it here today. Um, 
Well, my hope is that at the end of this talk, you would see just the greatness of the story, the vastness of the story, and how God has written us, written your name, written my name in, into that story. So let's begin with Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, reflecting uh, 20-some years after becoming a Jesus follower. And he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. In the fullness of time, at a specific moment in the history of the world, not before it, not too early, and not later, not too late, at the precise moment in the fullness of time implies that he had said that this moment was coming, and then it arrived at the exact time, the fullness of time. So this is a crazy big story, but if you think about incarnation, I mean, what is more improbable than the story that we have come to believe? I mean, think about this. This is an unwed mother conceiving a child in a podunk little country in the corner of the world, Israel, very small country, in an obscure time when they were oppressed by the Romans and life was pretty much hopeless. And he was a member of a hated race. The Jews were hated by the Romans. And yet this one life has changed most of us here and has changed the course of history. History itself being divided into B.C., and AD, before Christ and Anno dominate the year of our Lord because of this one improbable life. And yet the story I want to tell you here this morning is no myth, it's no fairy tale, it's something, it's a story that God said would happen and then God brought about. And all I can say is God is a crazy storyteller. This is just a crazy, crazy story. So four people groups, the Jews, the people of the East, the Greeks and the Romans. I want to start with the Jews. We begin our story in 1921 BC, almost 2,000 years before Christ, the promise made to Father Abraham. I know you all want to bust out in song right now, singing Father Abraham. No, don't do it. Don't do it. So let's look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, and let's reflect uh, back on this. And I will make of you, this is God speaking to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So if you've never heard this story before, this is called the beginning of redemptive history. This is the beginning point of God having a plan to save the entire world, that begins to roll out ever so slowly. He calls one single person, Abraham, and he tells Abraham, I'm going to save the world through you. Now, I just want you to imagine that first conversation between Father Abraham and Sarah. What do you think that looked like when Sarah listened to her husband say, well, God has chosen me, and God is going to save the planet through me? What would you think if your spouse told you about an alleged conversation with the divine? 
and that God was going to save the world through them. I mean, imagine the look of incredulity on Sarah. Imagine generation after generation, because this story got passed on, right? Imagine generation after generation reflecting on this. Do you think it was positive? I imagine kids gathered around hearing this story and thinking, Abraham, nice guy, a little unhinged, right? I mean, when he began talking about that God stuff, woo, Father Abraham is going to bless the world. You do know that we're a small little nomadic tribe, right? I mean, that's just crazy talk, is what they would have thought. So generation after generation would come and go, and unbelieving people would have laughed at the promise, but the believing few would have reflected and said, I wonder who that descendant of Abraham is going to be. How is God going to accomplish this great thing? We move forward in our story to 1689 BC, the blessing of Jacob. So what we have here is this dad, Jacob, gathering his family around because this was customary when, when fathers would pass. They would gather their children around and they'd give them a blessing. So he has 12 sons. Mike's souls are nothing. Six kids, nothing. Twelve sons. And he gathers them around. It's time to bless your kids. And Jacob begins first with Reuben. And instead he calls Reuben out from some sinful behavior that he had never discussed with his son. and said, no blessing. And then he comes to the next two sons, Simeon and Levi. And he calls them out for their violence and says, no blessing for you either comes to their next son, and this is recorded in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That phrase there is translated in many of our Bibles, the obedience of the nations. So imagine this. Here you are, the sons of Jacob, and you're listening to this, and it's like, wait a minute. First of all, why does Judah get a scepter? I wanted a scepter for Christmas, for goodness sake. Why does he get to be the ruler or king? Generation after generation would have discussed this promise. The unbelieving among them would have laughed. It's ridiculous. Jacob, dad, grandfather made a promise that the world is going to come worship some descendant of Judah? No way. But those who believed would have held on to that promise and would have waited for the descendant of Judah to whom the world would come one day and worship. Jacob, as you may know, became a nation, and it was the nation of Israel, the Israel that we know of here today. And his nation became a kingdom. And kingdoms get a king. Very smart. And that brings us to 930 B.C. 930 years before Christ, there is assurance given to the second king, King David. As David is about to be coronated king, a man steps forward, Nathan, and Nathan says, I have a message from God for you. Actually, it's not for you, it's for your son, your descendant. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, he says this, Your son, he, is the one who will build a house for my name. He will build a temple. 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if I was the one listening to that, my ears would have peaked up at that. Wait, wait, time out. Forever? What do you mean by that? Just to make sure we don't miss the point, he went on in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And things start out pretty well. Solomon becomes king, and he builds this temple. And so things are going great at this point in the story. The temple was regarded by the Jews as being the center of the universe, the most important place on earth, the place where God met his people, the Jews. The rest of the world was lost, but God was moving in on one little country, the people of Israel. But then the story heads south. The kingdom is divided, and then two countries come in, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they take the Jews and they disperse them all, the, all over the world. They're sent into exile. And the story should have just ended right there. Again, generation after generation, people would have looked at this promise that was given to David, and many of them would have laughed. Told you so. Here we are dispersed all over the world. And yet a believing few would have said, I wonder who that descendant, who that son of David will be, who will build a temple whose throne will last forever. So through a man, a prophecy, Abraham, through a man, Abraham, a prophecy was given that all the families of the earth would be blessed. To a second man, Jacob, a dad, a prophecy was given, a prediction that to him, to his descendant, the world would come and worship. And then a third prophecy was given to David, saying that this person, his throne, would last forever. So in this people group, the Jews, what God did as we look through the big scope of history, God prepared the world by giving prophecies, predictions, little clues as to the coming of the Messiah. So that's the story of the Jews. There's a second people group, and that's the people of the East. The people of the East. These were the Babylonians and the Persians. These were the guys that came into Israel and carried the people of Israel away into exile. They ended the dream. So we come to 530 B.C., 500 years still before Christ, the prophecy of Daniel. So before we look at this, uh, I want you to understand that over this period of time, the theology of Messiah developed. People reflected back on these prophecies, and they began to develop a cohesive understanding that God had promised a deliverer, and that deliverer would come through this one nation, the Jews. So there in Babylon, Daniel is reflecting. He's saying, I don't get it. When is this Messiah going to come? When is this going to happen? And God speaks to him as recorded in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, remember Jerusalem has been annihilated by the Babylonians. The temple and the city are ruined, 
And here in this prophecy, the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that is the Messiah, the ruler comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Next. Well, let's do the math on this. Seven seven. This is kind of cryptic, isn't it? What's that mean? Seven sevens and 62 sevens. Well, if we do the math, seven times seven is 49. 62 times 7 is 434. You add that together, and that's 483 years. So the prophet is saying in exact time, he's saying, listen, from the point that a decree is given, 483 years later, later the Messiah is going to show up on the scene. So this is what actually happens. Verse 26 after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. This is a clear prophecy that the Messiah would die. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the first prophecy is that the city and the temple will be rebuilt. And the next verse says the temple will actually then be destroyed. And this was fulfilled by the Romans in 70 AD. The Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem and utterly destroyed the temple in fulfillment of this very precise prophecy. So I want to tell you a little bit more about Daniel before you move on. Uh, Daniel, in his position, became the prime minister of the country. And so Daniel 2.48, let's look at that. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. You know the song, we three kings of Orient. We all have built into our understanding this uh, false concept that there are these kings that came. The, the scripture actually records that they were wise men. They were magi. And why did they come? Because Daniel was over the Magi, and he told them, here's where the Messiah, here's when the Messiah is going to come. I'll weave that back in here in just a little bit. So the starting point, the countdown to the Messiah showing up is his command given to rebuild Jerusalem. So when was this decree given? It's actually very confusing. There's actually not one decree, but four decrees. Four decrees given by, very, by, by different people. It's all very confusing. But one of those was given by a guy named Cyrus, who was the king of the Persians, and this is recorded in Isaiah 48. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be rebuilt. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, here's what's crazy about this. Cyrus was a pagan king. He was a Persian king. And the crazy bit about this is the math. It's that Cyrus was a ruler in 550 B.C. This prophecy from Isaiah was from 700 B.C. In other words, Cyrus's name was recorded in the scripture 150 years before he became ruler. 
a hundred years before he was born. Can you imagine how freaked out Cyrus must have been as Josephus, the historian, recorded that the Jews brought to King Cyrus and they opened up the scroll of Isaiah and they said, your name is in our book. And they showed him what scripture had written of him. Isn't that kind of freaky? Yes. But then I step back and I think, well, Jesus' birthplace was prophesied. Where Jesus was going to minister was prophesied. How much money Jesus would be betrayed for was prophesied. And how Jesus was to be buried was all prophesied. There's little pictures and clues of the coming Messiah all throughout the Old Testament to clue us in to have assurance in Jesus. There's an image here I want to show you. It's of the Cyrus Cylinder, and this is only an uh, archaeological find about Cyrus. This was a decree written by Cyrus that you can study out if you're interested in archaeology. So in 445, the first or one of these decrees was given. I said that there are several different decrees. The, Cy the uh, Persians were actually horrible record keepers, so it's really hard to track this down with any great precision. Uh, but one man, Sir Robert Anderson did the math. I'm not totally convinced on it, but he did the math from the point of the decree, and he counted up 483 years, and he arrived at Palm Sunday when Jesus announced himself as king to the nation of Israel. Okay, remember the wise men? I mentioned them just a minute ago. Uh, in the Christmas story, the wise men show up at Jesus' birth, and they present kings or they present gifts to him. Who are these guys? These are magi who came from the east, and this is what the scripture says when they came. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And again, they came because God had prepared a people group, the people of the east, to have this prophecy, this exact timing of when the Messiah was going to come. So I want to remind you of the temple. The temple was the, the center of the Jewish faith. And yet when the Persians, the people of the east, came and everyone went away into exile, the, the um, temple was destroyed. The Jewish faith changed. Instead, they had these local churches called synagogues that developed. So everywhere where Israel was exiled, there are all these little synagogues. So step back and think about this. It's like, how is God going to save the world? How is the, the message of the Messiah going to get out? And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my people into exile because then they'll have to create all these local churches called synagogues, and then this will go viral, and everyone will hear about the Messiah. Does that make sense? Like the worst thing that could happen would be for Israel to be exiled all over the world but because of that, everyone came to know about the Messiah. It became common knowledge that a Messiah was coming. It's interesting. Uh, at Pentecost Sunday, once Jesus had come and died and resurrected, there were thousands upon thousands of people in Jerusalem. And some of those people that heard that message were Parthians 
and Persians, people from the East who knew about the Messiah. The very first believer in Jesus who was not a Jew was a guy from Ethiopia because he too had heard the message about a Messiah and had come to seek after God. So through the people of the East, God prepared the world for the coming of the Messiah by planting synagogues all throughout the known world. After Persia came the third people group, that is the Greeks. And the Greek, Greek culture changed the world because there's this line of geniuses. There were Socrates and then Plato and then Aristotle and then all sorts of other guys. It's just a, a long, long list. God endowed this people group, the Greeks, with incredible intellect and they changed the world as a result because of their rationality their emphasis on thinking rationally many people abandoned the gods they abandoned their view that there were many gods because of the rational thinking of some of the greek philosophers many of us here have probably heard plato's allegory of the cave this description of of a man in front of a fire in a cave reflecting a, a shadow onto the wall. And, and the point of that allegory is that Plato believed that this world wasn't the real world. This world was just a, a shadowy reflection. And there was another world, an unseen world, where the true and the good and the beautiful could be found. These were called ideals. And so the people of the world began to think Maybe there is another world, not just our physical world. So Greek thinking prepared the world by helping people to understand that there are unseen things. And yet at the same time, through all of their philosophy, the Greeks couldn't like reach God. And so a spiritual vacuum was created. We abandoned the gods, but now what? And his spiritual vacuum was created as a result. Then came Alexander the Great, and he conquered the world. And so through this conquest, Greek civilization and the mentality of the Greek philosophers was brought throughout the, the whole world, as well as one common language. Instead of everybody speaking about a gazillion different languages, the whole world spoke one language, Koine Greek or common Greek. So if we fast forward to the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles, once they went out into the world to proclaim the message, the story would have ended right there. They came up to the first village and the people said, we actually speak Syrian. Oh. Well, I don't understand what you're saying, so goodbye. I mean, the story would have ended, but instead, everyone was prepared. Everyone spoke the same language. And this brings us to the final people group, the Romans. Greece was defeated by the Roman Empire. And the Romans did uh, a number of different things that prepared the world for Christ. For, first was called Pax Romana which basically as the Romans conquered the world, they brought peace to the world. Through their violence, then they established a time of world peace. And so it was a very safe time later for the apostles to travel throughout the world because the Romans had established peace. They also accomplished, again, another great abandonment of the gods because the Romans 
as they conquered these tribes, these tribes with their defeated God decided, well, our, our God didn't work. It created a spiritual vacuum. The Romans also loved to build roads. Now, this is kind of interesting to me. Do you know how many miles of highway we have? In, in our country, yeah. We have 47,000 miles of road. It's a lot of road, actually, if you think about it. The Romans had more. They had 50,000 miles of road. And so, again, when the gospel came and the good news came, the early Christians had Roman roads to walk on to make travel very easy in a time of peace with the world speaking one language. Finally, there was this thought of Roman justice, and the Romans' philosophy was basically this. We'll let you worship whatever you want. You can keep doing whatever customs you want, but we are the law. From Scotland to the Sahara Desert, Roman law was established, and the Romans believed and had a heavy hand of justice. So over each ruler throughout the Roman Empire, many of them had a little statue of Janus, on their desk of justice. And Janus was a person with two faces, one facing that way and one facing the other. As if to communicate, we see all and we will rule with justice over all. And so what this did was it created a world that was kind of tired of the heavy hand of justice. And so when the Apostle Paul came and he traveled down the Roman road, speaking the language of the day, his message was, through Christ I have received mercy, not justice. It's interesting what Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, said. Tacitus said, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time, the at this very time, the East was to grow more powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. This is not scripture. This is the common thinking of the Romans at that, at that time, that a ruler would come from the East, that's where Jesus was from, and he would conquer the world. That was their expectation. Josephus put it this way. And he was a Jewish historian. He said that the Jews had a belief that about that time, one from their country should become governor of the habitable earth. You remember the story of the woman at the well? This can pass the notice of many of us. In John, John chapter 4, verse 25, the woman said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. God working through history, working through dads in their dying breath, working through nations and kings making decrees, and through conquerors and pagan kings and universal languages, created a world that was tired of justice. It created a spiritual vacuum of people that were hungry and just waiting for someone 
to please come and make sense of this world. That's the story behind the story. That's the story of the world that God had prepared for the Messiah. I want to look at a verse from uh, Isaiah 9-6 and ask the worship team to come up. And let's remember that this prophecy was written 700 years before Jesus came to earth. 700 years before all of these dominoes had begun, begun to fall into place, God told us what was coming. Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here's where we prepare for Christmas here in this next week with our lives so busy and so full of so many preparations. My hope for all of us is that we'd sit and we'd reflect on the vastness of God. The vastness of God to prepare nations and individuals for the coming of the Messiah. Why don't you stand with us as we move into worship? God, we thank you. We worship you for how big you are. The story is beyond our imagination. The story of a little baby born in the most humble means in a little town called Bethlehem. His life threatened by a vicious King Herod but his life to be freely given some 30 years later. His life to be freely given as a sacrifice for us. God with flesh so that we could be changed. So we just pause and reflect and we give you thanks for who you are and what you've accomplished. Not just through the birth, but through the life, the words, the message, the death, the resurrection, and the spirit of Jesus Christ. We worship you here this morning.